Will Ford III, right? Come on down, brother. It is the third, right? Thank you. So I'm telling you, we, we had Will here, uh, I don't know what it was, it might have been two years ago, I think, right? Because, yeah, because of the whole COVID. Uh, and uh, fiery, fiery, fiery man, but also the gentleness of the Lord. And uh, like I said, I, I, yeah, he's a great speaker. He's got an awesome testimony. But I am telling you, particularly for this hour in the nation, and I believe for Philadelphia, uh, Will is carrying an anointing and a calling on the Lord uh, that should just be released here. I remember we were having a conversation about the Ascend Conference, and Jamie was like, you know, who should we have be the keynote speaker? And then before he even said, like, note of keynote, it was like, I know in my spirit, it was just like, Will Ford. It's got to be Will Ford. And uh, I was like, hey, I'm just going to submit this to you guys. You know, I just really feel Holy Ghost is saying Will Ford is the man for this hour in Philadelphia. And uh, I'm, 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 I don't want to be presumptuous, but I believe I heard from the Lord. And I think, you know, I think we all, in good counsel, was like, this is the guy. Because I am telling you, as I said, the glory of the Lord fell. It fell. And I don't think that's just for that meeting. I don't think it's just for that conference. I believe it's for this hour. Amen. Amen? So, Lord, we just bless Mr. Ford and all the wealth that he has. I mean, this guy, this guy could be a professor. I think he is at times, right? Uh, goes around, teaches on, on so many different elements of history and the gospel. And Lord, we just release what you want to do through him in this house, Lord. We want to just join you and join Will in what he is speaking in this hour over the nation and over Philadelphia. So Lord, we just pray for open eyes and open ears, right? Let them who, who can hear, hear. Let those who can see, see, right? We just, we just, we just, oof. I just fall out in the presence, so I'm going to hand over the microphone. Bless you, Lord. Oh, bless the Lord. It is such an honor to be back with y'all again. And, uh, yeah, he's right. I was a professor at uh, Christ for the Nations Institute for about, about 10 years. But uh, this summer, the Lord told me that he wanted me to dive headlong into what's happening with the nation, with especially all the division that's going on right now. And so in the middle of COVID and no churches to fly to, I quit my job <laughs> to travel and speak. <laughs> yeah, don't you love God's time? But you know what? God's been so faithful, man. I haven't missed a beat financially or whatever. That's not for you not to give. I'm just saying God's, God's been so faithful, so faithful. And uh, it's an honor to be back with y'all again. Honored to be with you here in Philadelphia, PA. Turn with me in your Bibles or turn on your Bibles. Right? <laughs> know what generation I'm talking to. Go to uh, Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to start at verse 32. It says this, And what shall I say, what shall I more say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and of Barak and of Samson and of Jephthah, of David also, and Samuel, and of all the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, attained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quitched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, waxed valiant in fight, turned to flight the armies of aliens. Women received their dead, raised to life again. And others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might attain a better resurrection. Ain't that a trip? <laughs> Think about it. He says... 
women received their dead, raised to life again, and that same faith gave others the, 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 the focus to endure torture, and they, they would refuse deliverance so they could obtain a, a better resurrection. In other words, the same faith it took to raise the dead was the same faith that it took to endure torture. I think we need that kind of faith right now in church, right? Goes on and he says, um, and others had trials of cruel mockings and scourging, shame over bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn asunder, were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. One translation says, men of whom the world was not worthy, and women. <laughs> they wandered in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. And these all, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise. God having provided some better thing for us that they without us should not be made perfect. Now, I've, I've actually committed this whole thing to, to, to memory. Hebrews 11 all the way down through Hebrews 12, 1 through 3. Listen to how it really fin should finish off. It should finish off around, around here, some scholars believe. So I remembered it uh, down to there. Don't test my memory in front of y'all because I get nervous and I forget. But, <laughs> so I will read. It says this. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin with us so easily beset us. And let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God, then he says this, for consider him who endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest you be wearied and faint in your minds. In other words, if he went through it, we're going to go through it too. Right? Not that we glory in, 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 in going through it or anticipate it like we're in this escapist mentality. No, but when we go through it, we go through it. But don't be surprised because if you do, you're going to drive yourself crazy. <laughs> You're going to faint in your mind. All right, so turn me one more scripture, and then I pray, and then we get, we'll, we'll launch into this. Go with me in your Bibles to 2 Samuel. Second Samuel chapter 9, verse 1 says this. And David said, is there yet any of that is in the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? And there was of the house of Saul a servant named Ziba, and he came to the king David, the king, and said to him, art thou Ziba? And he said, thou, thy servant is here. And the king said, is there yet any in the house of Saul that I may show him the kindness of God? And Ziba said to him, Unto the king, Jonathan had a son who was lame of both feet, and he'll bring in this son named Mephibosheth. I want to talk to you today about our shared inheritance because we have this God who loves to remember. And he remembers the sacrifice of all those who have gone before us right here in this city. So when I'm here, I, I guess it's the history thing that's on your past. I love to step into talking about what, not just remembering the past, but so that we could use the past to be the starting blocks for our future, all right? So the Lord loves remembering. He loves to bring us back to that place. So 
I want to talk about our shared inheritance of revival and justice that's here. There's so many people talking about the great divisions. I want to talk about the great remnant <laughs> of believers in this city that did amazing things that are still around today, but they're, they are basically a launch pad for revival today. So let's pray. Jesus, we absolutely love you. God, we give you glory. We give you honor. We give you praise. God, we magnify your holy name. This morning, we thank you so much for newness of life, forgiveness of sins. <laughs> And Father, we thank you so much that you're going to answer your son's prayer. In John 17, we said, Father, I pray that they be one so that your glory can come so that the world will believe. God, you go find our Mephibosheths today. Would you raise up a generation of people who will lay down their lives the way others lay down their lives for us in the place of prayer so that generations even yet to be created can praise you. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen, amen. amen. So, I, uh, you know, I love praying people. I know there's some intercessors here, but, and I'm one of them. We can get kind of goofy. Intercessors, they do. I mean, because they hear God, you know, but every pastor who wants to put one out of his church because they say something goofy to him, they, they know that there's, there are other times when those intercessors hear things and just, poof, they're spot on, right? And so I had this little lady come to me once years ago. I just getting ready to start this thing called the uh, a prayer journey with some other folks uh, called the Kettle Tour. And before I get ready to go on this prayer journey, I was in this room with all these other folks. I mean, there's sometimes there's folks who are, who are prophetic, then some people who are pathetic. You know, and I, I've vacillated between both of those, okay, to be, to be honest. And so I had this one friend who I love to pray with, but sometimes she's, you know, she's like any good bowl of cereal. There's some fruits, nuts, and flakes in there. But every now and then, <laughs> she's flaky sometimes, but she gets right on, so you can't discount everything she says. That's why the Bible says, what, test everything and hold fast to that which is good, right? Sometimes we test everything and hold fast to that which is bad. You miss it here, you miss it there. Well, we're all going to miss it. We all know in part. But anyway, so I had this one friend. She's, she was kind of like that, and she came up to me in service, and she said, Will, the Lord tell me to tell you that your worship is like a wooden spinning top. And the Lord told me to tell you that you're also like the person who plays the fife in the Revolutionary War. She said, remember this and hide it in your heart. It's going to mean something to you later on. And, of course, like y'all, I'm thinking, this makes no sense. <laughs> Why would you even tell me something like that? So I was, I was nice to her, but I was like, parking lot prophecy, whatever. You know? <laughs> so I go to a whole other state. I'm in Virginia, and this lady comes up to me. She says, Will, the Lord has called me to pray for, pray for people he has identified to me who are called to be lighthouses for America. And he's told me that you're one of those, and I'm called to pray for you. Can I meet with you for a second? At first, I was like, oh, here we go again. You know? And uh, the Lord was like, no, nah, sit down, shut up, and listen. I just had a quickening on me. I was like, oh, this, there's something on this. So I go in this room, and she said, the Lord has called me to pray for people who are lighthouses. And... Uh, I feel like I'm supposed to connect with you to be an intercessor for you. And she said, the Lord has identified to me that these people who are called to be lighthouses are meant to have strong foundations so that the winds and the waves will knock them over. And also the room where the lighthouse bulb is kept, they wash those windows often because the empty, well, the, they wash the windows often so that nothing hinders the light from going forth. And the room where the lighthouse bulb is kept, they keep that room empty because the emptier a lighthouse is, the brighter it shines. 
So I've been praying for these people that they may be rooted and grounded in the love of God and that, and that God will continue to wash the windows of their soul and that they will be empty of man's agenda so that God's light can shine through them. And she said, so I have 10 lighthouse people that I've been praying for like this, and uh, you're going to be my 11th lighthouse. But you're my first African-American lighthouse. She said, I don't know why, but the, the number 111 is going to mean something to you. So I'm like, okay, here we go. Now she's a numbers, numbers person, right? <laughs> And she said this, she said, and you're going to be used like the Cape Hatteras Lighthouse. The Cape Hatteras Lighthouse is this lighthouse that has black and white spiral and stripes upon it. And God's going to use you to unite black and white and all the races in this nation to shine brightly in dark places and turn the nation back in the right direction. So she says that, and I'm, I'm feeling the wind on the, wind of the spirit of what she's saying. And then she says this, and she said, the Lord told me that you're kind of like a skeptic. And you weren't going to believe me at first, so you need a confirmation. So he, for some reason, he told me to give you this wooden spinning top and this fife. Do these things mean anything to you? And I was like, oh, I freak out. Scared me, right? It wasn't even the Holy Ghost, y'all. I just got scared. <laughs> so I get home, and guess what? Somebody has sent me a book called American Lighthouses. My wife opens up the book. It falls open to page 111 on its own. Remember she said 111? Page 111 said African-American lighthouse keepers. And it went on to say that the Cape Hatteras Lighthouse, that she said that I represented to her, was secretly run by an African-American slave. I mean, praying people, you get these, these weird little things. It gets worse, sir. <laughs> <laughs> As old folks used to say, it gets worse. Right? I go to this, this service where an old, uh, old co older cousin of ours comes to the Lord, but he sexually called to preach the gospel. And he's in this one, in these one old, old you know, missionary black Baptist churches from back in the day where they had the mourner's bitch in the front. And uh, the, old, uh, the, the, the old preachers and the, and the deacons and the elders were seeing the old 100s, right? I don't know if some of y'all remember those days, but yeah, you, you know what I'm talking about? They, be, be down there in the front singing those songs. Uh, Guide me over great Jehovah. I always thought they were singing like Bible verses or whatever. Not Bible verses, but the books of the Bible. Nehemiah and Job. No, they weren't singing. They were actually singing something. But they started singing all of a sudden at the morning's bench. Let the light of the lighthouse shine on me. I freak out. I go up to them at the end. They say, yeah, that was actually a Song, that song's hundreds of years old. It was a secret code song sung during slavery. And so the people who were part of the Underground Railroad, black and white, those conductors that were setting people free on the Underground Railroad, that was a code song that they would sing on the plantation to let people know that the Underground Railroad was coming in the middle of the night. And they would take a mirror and use it to reflect the light of the moon in the middle of the night. And when they saw that flickering light, they knew that that was the lighthouse shining the way to freedom. They were the first ever black and white cast down faith people of lighthouse intercession. So I want to talk about that amazing inheritance that we have in Christ Jesus. But I want to connect it to this, this family inheritance that I have in my family. So let me lay this out for you. I brought some some slides I want to share with you today. So check this out. 
So Joshua 4 talks about these memorial stones. We're talking about remembrances. And in Joshua 4, there were these memorial stones. There was this whole generation that hadn't seen the Red Sea part. But they, were basically, they basically grew up, of, uh, they were the recipients of the previous generation's sacrifice, right? They had clothes they never wore out. They ate little cakey white stuff every day called manna, right? In other words, the supernatural was normal for them. Supernatural is normal for them. And so the Lord is going to kill two birds with one stone, and he's going to send a message to the enemies at Jericho at the same time while he um, acquaints this generation with his power the way he did with the previous generation. And so the Lord parts the Jordan River the same way he parted the Red Sea. But while the Jordan River is parted, the Lord says, you know what? There's going to come a generation after then that hadn't seen the Red Sea part or the Jordan River part. So here's what I want to do. I want you to have... I want you to grab stones out of the middle of the Jordan River, one for each tribe. I want you to pile up 12 stones uh, on one side of the Jordan River, even in the middle of the Jordan River, and on the other side of the Jordan River. And when your children ask you later on saying, what do these stones mean to you, tell them, listen, I didn't get these stones out of the Jordan River because, you know, I was a good swimmer. <laughs> didn't have scuba gear yet. <laughs> no, the same God apart the Red Sea is the same God apart the Jordan River, and he'll part whatever circumstance for you. Right. Those stones were the introduction to their next generation of their history with the God of Israel. Right. So when they saw those stones, they would provoke them to remember and understand what God had done for them. And so God loves to remember. So, but here's the thing. When God saw those 12 stones, he didn't see a pile of rocks. You know what he saw? He saw the great-great-grandsons of his covenant friend Abraham who left everything to follow him. God loves to remember, and you think about it, we, we, we like to remember, too. We're made in his image, we're made in his likeness, and I think we take for granted how much memory means to us, and if it means that much to us and our little finite understanding of what memory is, imagine what it means to God, yeah, right? I mean, Facebook is worth what? How much? Like, what's the last evaluation? Like, trillions? All because it houses our memories. Instagram, same thing. Right? If I were to give you my scrapbook from back in the day, like my high school yearbook, and you would start laughing at those polyester suits, what you're coming back? All right, don't throw, the, throw away those, those just yet. Or you start laughing at those jerry curls, God, please don't bring back the jerry curl. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs> I'm messing up somebody's furniture, you know, doing that stuff. Whatever. Those streak. Streaks on the wall, but anyway. <laughs> but if I was to get that same scrapbook back, I might start weeping because I remember the battles I fought with this person and the things I overcame with that person. Memories, right? When they had the fires in Reading, people weren't concerned about the houses or the cars. You know what they were more concerned about? Their scrapbooks. Because those Polaroids that you can't replace were gone, right? We love to remember because God loves to remember. And so it's interesting. First Kings 18.31, Elijah is having a showdown with the prophets of Baal, and what does he do? To remind God of his covenant and to remind Israel of their covenant with God, he gathers 12 stones to rebuild the altar of Israel that we're toward now. And when God sees those 12 stones, his heart is moved so powerfully, he remembers his covenant with Abraham. 
Isaac, and Jacob. And on those old stones, he releases a new fire for the next generation. All right. Because God loves to remember. Give another understanding of this. In the New Testament, in uh, Acts 8 and 4, what does he say to Cornelius? Listen, your prayers and your alms have come up as a memorial. Your giving is remembered before God. It's precious to him. But even on top of that, your prayers become a memorial. Revelation 5 and 8 says, so much so that it's, your, your prayers are collected in not wooden Tupperware bowls, plastic bowls, but golden bowls. Because that's how precious your prayers are to God. All right. He, you know, everybody talks about all these great collectors, Jay Leno and all these other folks, <laughs> the things that they have. Somebody just paid uh, $1.5 million for uh, Kobe Bryant's uh, rookie, uh, rookie baseball, uh, football, well, basketball card, right? Collectors. God collects your prayers. Stores them. He collects your conversations. <laughs> Malachi 3, 16 and 17. Every time those who fear the Lord spoke to one another, the Lord took notice of it, and he wrote it down in a book of remembrance. <laughs> He hangs on to every single word you say because he loves you that much. Right? Yeah, we're going to be judged for every idle word, but beyond that, think of it. We have a kind of, the kind of God who hangs on to every word that you say. Right? So, let me show you one of the things in my family that uh, has been collected Basically, it's one of those memorial stones. We all have memorial stones. Remember that check that came in the mail when you weren't expecting it? Right? That's a memorial stone for you and God. Remember that time you got healed, the doctor's report said something different? That's a memorial stone. All right? You can take those memories and build an altar <laughs> and ask new fire to fall today as you remind God of what he did yesterday. That's why when we say, in the name of Jesus, the father's heart gets flooded with the sacrificial devotion of his son. His heart erupts because he remembers what Jesus did for us on the cross. All right? So I want to connect you to some of these memories, not just in my family, but all, especially here in this area. So that particular kettle pot, which I couldn't bring this time because I flew American Airlines, and they charged me like $600 round trip to bring it. <laughs> so it was either me or the kettle. <laughs> so I thought, ah, it's going to be me. <laughs> That has been in my family, and it's about 200 years old. It's used by the slaves in my family. They use it for cooking. They use it for washing clothes. But y'all, listen, it was secretly used for prayer. The folks in my family, they were Christians, and they were on this plantation where they wanted them to be Christians, but they didn't want them to pray because they felt like if they prayed, it would foster hope. And if they got hopeful, they felt like they would try to run away. So they would literally be beaten on this plantation if they were caught praying. Give an example of how cruel slavery was in that plantation where that story passed down about a great uncle who was literally beat to death just for going fishing without asking. And if they were caught praying, they would be beaten as well. But listen, the folks who had this pot in my family, they were Christians, and they decided to pray anyway. So what they would do is they would go into a barn late at night to make sure the prayer beating wasn't seen, but to make sure it wasn't heard, they used that cast iron pot. And so they would take the pot in the middle of the cabin floor and they would turn it upside down and then prop it up with rocks so it would be suspended off the ground about an inch or two. 
they would then prostrate themselves on the ground and put their lips in between the opening, between the ground and the kettle, so that the kettle pot muffled their voices as they prayed through the night. And the story they passed down with this pot is this, is that they didn't think they would see freedom in their time. So they prayed for the freedom of their children in the next generation. <laughs> One day, freedom comes, and this young teenage girl, she decides to keep that pot and that story in our family. Why would she do that? Well, she's probably thinking about all those who are dead and gone, who risked their lives to pray for her. She's probably thinking about all those who are too old to enjoy the freedom she's about to embrace. So she keeps this pot and this story as a memorial for our family. And she passed the pot and the story down to her daughter, Harriet Lockett, who then passed it on to her daughter, Nora Lockett, who then passed it on to her son, William Ford Sr., who then passed it on to William Ford Jr., who then passed it on to me, William Ford III. So it's been this memorial stone that's been in my family. So memorial stones are God's heavenly scrapbook <laughs> where he introduces the present generation to the history of his faithfulness with the previous generation. And we're all recipients of somebody else's sacrifice in the place of prayer, all right? Now, here's the one thing that uh, you need to know is that um, during that time period, it wasn't just black Christian slaves who were praying. There were also white Christian abolitionists and white revivalists who knew that if any person was a slave was a Christian, then that person was their brother. Listen, these folks laid their lives down for each other. Many of them had those, the, many of the white revivalists and, and abolitionists had their houses burned, they were shot, they were killed, and they were lynched because they chose to suffer with the people of God rather than compromise and wink at slavery. And a lot of people talk about how the Bible was used in this nation to put, keep people in slavery. That's true, but listen, there were another group of people who used that same Bible to set a whole nation free. And we got to tell the whole story, right? So there's this powerful render. One of these men, of course, John Wesley, John Wesley, powerful preacher of the gospel. He and his brother, Charles, powerful preachers of the gospel, care revival, and they preach here in the Philadelphia area. Charles Finney as well. Took, these guys took strong stands against slavery because they knew the Christian slave was their brother. That's why, you know, Thinking about what they did is so powerful because it helped me understand something. See, my ancestors have, have been Muslims or Buddhists. I had no connection to their part of its history, right? Because I'm a Christian. But listen, but because they were Christians, listen, not only are those my ancestors or forefathers, they're yours too. In other words, we're all connected because of the blood of Jesus. We have this shared inheritance that goes to those folks, that goes to uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, uh, the apostles, the, the prophets. And when we come together in kind of unity, that kind of agreement, y'all, something powerful happens. That makes sense? So this is all of our shared inheritance, right? And so these guys knew that Charles Finney even had a church once. At the end of his, closer toward the end of his life, when he wasn't traveling much, he had this huge church of about 2,500 people, which was a big church at that time period. Uh, congregations weren't that large. And so he decided to build a new building. And the architects came to him and said, hey, um, well, the builders came to him and said, hey, the architects don't have a balcony for where the blacks are going to sit. Because back then, if, if uh, black and white were in the same building, the blacks always sat in the balcony, whites at the bottom. And Finney went to him and said, no, 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 no. There's no mistake in the architect's plans because we're all on the same level in Christ. We're going to sit on the same level. So the townspeople found out about those plans and they burned the church down. 
and the fire department refused to put the flames out. <laughs> but Finney and that congregation, they band together and they put that building back together. Finney wouldn't even serve communion to people that he knew owned slaves. So these people took strong stands against what was happening during that time period. And so, and here's how I got worked during that time period. So I found out after combing through 3,500 slave narratives, I found 400 times where slaves had to pray for freedom uh, in private. But then I found half of those times, like my family, they used wash pots, barrels, and kettles to muffle their voices. I'll talk about that a little bit more. And so what they would do, uh, I saw that in slave narratives in, in um, Texas, Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, North Carolina, and Arkansas. Right. And this came from a book written by Alba J. Rabbitizer, Princeton University professor. He said this, the most common device for preserving secrecy was an iron pot usually placed in the middle of the cabin floor at the doorstep then slightly propped up to hold the sound of praying and singing from escaping. <laughs> the variation was to sing softly with heads uh, together around the kettle to deaden the sound. When asked why they used this method to conceal their voices, one former slave replied, I don't know where they learned to do that. I kind of think the Lord put them things in their minds to do for themselves, just like he helps us Christians in other ways. Don't you think so? <laughs> Fascinating. So what they would do is they would sing a song in the middle of the day that was a secret code song. Remember I told you about the other secret code song for the Underground Railroad folks, but then they also had secret code songs they would sing for prayer meetings. One of those songs was Still Away to Jesus. Y'all remember that? Still away, still away. Still away to Jesus. I don't sing that good, right? <laughs> I'm in the Joy for Noise category, so I don't want to try to sing for you guys. But the deal is this. They would sing Still Away to Jesus in the day to let everybody know there was going to be a prayer meeting that night. And they said that they didn't tell each other what time to wake up because they didn't want it to get back to the big house. So they said that the Holy Spirit will wake them up at the right time in the middle of the night while everyone else was asleep on the plantation. And so the first person would bend big branches or trees in the direction where the prayer meeting was going to be. And the next person would come along and feel which way those branches were bent. And when they would get there, they would uh, either go into barns or they built what they called a hush harbor. A hush harbor is where they would take wet blankets with them and build a tent. And they believed that the wet blankets would deaden the sound as they prayed. And then the other way was they would uh, go into barns and turn kettles upside down or prop them up at the door so that acoustically it would, it would catch the noise. Another thing they would do is they would dig holes in the ground and get off in the hole and put the wash pot barrel or kettle over them so they could pray. Well, Hebrews 11.36 says, These were people of whom the world was not worthy, <laughs> who dwelt in mountains and caves and holes in the ground. <laughs> and then the cooking pots I add, praying for you, praying for me, right? And they endured a lot for uh, uh, what they went through. Now, other thing, too, and I was sh sharing this with uh, Jose before the service, what most people don't realize is that during, during slavery, during the Great Awakenings, African Americans who were enslaved and who were, free, who were free were flocking to those revival meetings. Many of them were getting saved. Some of them were even preaching the gospel. Some became such powerful gospel preachers that white congregations bought their freedom and made them pastors in their churches. 
I'll get to talk about some of those in a second. But let's talk about some of the suffering that these folks went through. You've probably seen this very familiar picture. If you Google anything about slavery on Facebook, on, 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 uh, not just Facebook, but on Google, this picture pops up this slave who was beaten. Slaves were literally beaten like this because of their prayer life. This one particular instance here, this is uh, Moses Gandhi. Moses Gandhi's um, wife's brother, Isaac, was a preacher, and he would sneak off in the woods to pray. In this one particular instance, when he comes back, the slave master catches him. Here's what happens to him. You can follow me about a middle way down. He says, my wife's brother, Isaac, was a colored preacher. A number of slaves went privately into the woods to hold meetings, but when they were found out, they were flogged, and each was, was uh, forced to tell who else was there. Three of them were shot. This was for going off to pray. Three of them were shot, two of whom were killed, and the other was badly wounded. For preaching to them, Isaac was flogged and his back pickled. Spain pickling. So pickling is when they would beat someone with a whip, like we saw with the gentleman just before, and they would take hot water or turpentine and throw it on his wounds. Listen what happens to this man for going off to pray. He was flogged and his back pickled, and when it was nearly well, he was flogged and pickled again. And so on and so on for some months. Then his back suffered to get well, and he was sold. A little while before this, his wife was sold away with an infant at her breast, and out of six children, four had been sold away one at a time. On the way to his buyers, he dropped down dead. He died of a broken heart for sneaking off to pray. Right? So Candace Richardson, in her slave narrative, she said this. She said, my friend's husband was beat off for going off to pray. He was still off to the woods and pray, but the beatings never stopped him from praying. One time, Master beat her husband so unmerciful for praying that his shirt was as red from bloodstain as if you painted with a brush. Then she says, it was his prayers and a whole lot of other slaves that caused you young folks to be free today. Isn't that powerful? And then this gentleman right here, Elijah P. Lovejoy, this is one of those revivalists and abolitionists back in the day who took a strong stand against slavery because he knew the Christian slave was his brother. And so when a slave was beat to death in this town of Alton, Illinois, he took, you know, he took issue with it, and he decided to become an abolitionist. So he buys this new thing called a printing press and um, starts writing up and printing up abolitionist material with that printing press and distributing it all over the place. And many people begin to shift from slavery to abolition, except for this one angry mob of people who would come to his house and threaten his life. So Elijah P. Lovejoy went before his city council and he said, listen, it's the duty of the government to protect its citizens. Why won't you protect me? And they said, sir, if you would just stop preaching what you're preaching and writing what you're writing, that would be your protection. So Elijah P. Lovejoy stood before his city council and he stands before him and he says, Forgive my tears, I shed them not for myself, but for you and others. I cannot stop preaching what I'm preaching or writing, 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 because if I did, I would fear that the angel of the Lord with his flaming sword would pursue me wherever I'm going. I don't fear man, I fear God. And if I fall, make my grave here in Alton, Illinois. End of quote. His words proved to be prophetic. The next day, an angry mob came to his house, burned his house down, and as he ran out to escape the flames, Elijah P. Lovejoy was shot and killed for preaching against slavery and taking a stand against the injustice of his day. So God has not forgotten about people like that. 
But here's one of the things that's so fascinating. So you have the preaching of the gospel, and you had African Americans who were being encountered, and their encounters were incredible. Because remember, back during this time period, they could not, they they, they, they couldn't learn how to read and write because it was against the law. It's against the law for them to learn to read and write. It's against the law for anybody to teach them how to read and write. So, the best way to keep somebody a slave is keep them, you know, uneducated. That's another sermon for another day. But anyway, so during the Reconstruction period when they were sent out to teach them how to read, white missionaries found something that was so uncanny. Here's what they said. White missionaries who taught slaves how to read said many could recite whole passages of Scripture. One slave could recite Matthew, including all the genealogies. Right? They said that supernatural could remember and recite scripture. Now, I've been, I told you I've been trying to memorize he, uh, Hebrews 11, but there were slaves who could who had memorized, not memorized, who knew all of Matthew chapter 1, including the genealogies. And they would ask them, how did you, where did you get this from? They said, well, I was out praying in the woods, and all of a sudden this angel showed up, and ever since that angelic encounter, I know all these scriptures. There were slaves who could quote all, uh, many of the Psalms verbatim, but they did not know how to read and write. That's the kind of encounters they were having there in, uh, uh, during that time period. And then many of them became powerful preachers. Here's one of my favorite preachers, <laughs> a man named Jeffrey Milner. Jeffrey Milner was in Cartersville, Georgia, and uh, he gets saved during this time period of the, of the awakenings. And his his slave master said, you know what, I'm going to let you preach to the slaves on the plantation. So he starts preaching to the slaves on the plantation. And, uh, uh, and then other slave masters said, hey, you know what, let Jeffrey preach to the slaves on our, on, our, on our place too. Then one of those slaves went to his master one day and said, master, guess what? I'm free now. I said, what do you mean you're free? He said, well, we're free in Christ Jesus, so that means I'm no longer a slave. He's like, where did you get that from? He said, you know, well, Jeffrey, you know, he came and preached on the plantation, and he told us that. He's like, okay, thank you. So they got with the, all the other slave masters, <laughs> and they thought, we got to shut this preacher down. But before we do it, we need to make an example out of him. So they went to the mayor of the city, and they decided to take care of Jeffrey. They decided to kill Jeffrey Milner, so they built a gallows to hang him. <laughs> They're going to have a public hanging to make an example out of him. And so Jeffrey is there, and they put the noose around his neck. All the people there watching it, and then, they, and then the, the mayor said, well, Jeffrey, do you have any last words? And Jeffrey said, well, if I guess I have any last words to say, I guess my last words would be my last sermon. And Jeffrey began to preach. When Jeffrey Milner began to preach, the power of God fell so strong, people fell out on the power of the Holy Spirit. People began to weep uncontrollably. <laughs> And then the mayor looked at Jeffrey with tears in his eyes, and he says, Jeffrey, where are your accusers? I find no fault in you. And he took the noose from around his neck and, and released him. He went on to plant three Baptist churches in Georgia. Two of them are around still to this day, and one of them put that story up on the website. That's where I got it from. That's the kind of powerful preacher that these folks uh, 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 you know, walked in back then. Let me tell you about one of them. This, this is Mort's conversion experience. 
So this is a slave. He tells this story. He says this. One day I was out in the field plowing. I heard a voice. I looked and saw no one. Everything got dark. I was unable to stand any longer. With this, I began to cry, mercy, mercy, mercy. As I prayed, an angel came and touched me, and I looked new, and there came a voice saying, my little one, I've loved you with an everlasting love. You are a chosen vessel unto the Lord. He says, I must have been in this trance for more than an hour. I went back to the barn and found my master waiting for me, and I began to tell him of my experiences. So he thought his master was going to uh, punish him for how long he was gone. Well, listen to what he says. He said, my master sat watching and listening to me, and then he began to cry. He turned to me and said with a broken voice, Mort, I believe you're called to be a preacher. All right, there we go. Mort, I believe you're called to be a preacher. From now on, you can preach to the people here in my place, but tomorrow, Sunday, I want you to preach to my family and my neighbors. The next morning, he says, I stood on two planks in front of the big house, and without Bible or anything, I began to preach to my master and the people. He said, my thoughts came so fast, I could hardly speak quick enough. My soul caught on fire, and soon I had them all in tears. I told them that they must be born again, and that their souls must be free from the shackles of hell. Ha, <laughs> ha, powerful. So let me tell you some of these stories about black and white working together. This man here, his name is Harry Hoosier. He, he was an intercessor who traveled with Francis Asbury. Francis Asbury was a person who started the circuit rider right out of here, right in Philadelphia, and a, a powerful preacher. You could not be a circuit rider and own slaves. You couldn't be part of them. Matter of fact, the circuit riders, when they traveled across the country, they carried three things in their satchel, a Bible, a hymnal, and the manumission forms. Manumission forms were so that if they preached the gospel and a slave owner got saved, they would say to him, listen, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Go ahead and sign these documents, these manumission forms, and go ahead and set your slaves free too. We know that's what happened because everywhere the circuit riders went, the free slave population grew exponentially. Isn't that powerful? So, and this is before 1776 when that was going on. So, but uh, during this time period, Harry Hoosier was a, he had been a slave, somehow wins his freedom, and he's traveling as a co-laborer in Christ with Francis Asbury. He was his chief intercessor. And they're working together across the country, traveling together by horseback. But one day, they get to this one place to preach, and Francis Asbury can't, he can't preach that night. So he says, hey, um, Harry, why don't you go ahead and take over the meeting? So Harry Hoosier does, and when he does, revival breaks out. <laughs> And they had to linger in that area for quite some time because the Spirit of God was moving in that region. Here's what happened. After that, Harry Hoosier became such a beloved speaker. Benjamin Russ said he was one of the most eloquent speakers in all of America. Couldn't read or write. <laughs> all he knew was the Bible um, uh, when he first started learning how to read. But the thing is this. <clears throat> uh, he carried such a revival anointing. He's traveled across the country. He gets to his uh, one place in Indiana, and he's preaching the gospel. Massive revival breaks out there. They have these protracted meetings where they're meeting day after day, and thousands of people are getting saved, black and white, coming to hear him speak. Some of the denominational folks there got mad and began, you know, got jealous. And so they started poking fun of the people who were getting saved in his, in his gatherings. And they said, you know, well, anybody who gets saved in his gathering is just a fan. They're just a Hoosier. Hoosier, you ever notice that about Indiana? Indiana became known as the Hoosier State because Harry Hoosier turned it upside down with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that's him. And then this lady here, oh my gosh, she's one of my favorite. Amanda Smith, 
preach right here in Philadelphia. Amanda Smith, uh, she was at a Phoebe Palmer uh, revival meeting. And she, she gets saved. She's 16 years old. She had just come out of slavery. Her, her grandmother paid for her to get uh, free uh, from, from being enslaved. And while she's at that gathering, she sees the words go written in fire in an open vision over her head. And she knew that God was calling her to go and preach the gospel all around the world. And that's exactly what happened with her. She preached in white audiences, black audiences, mostly white, powerful singing voice, walked in signs and wonders. And so she went to Indonesia to, to go speak once. And uh, there was a, this is an example of the signs and wonders she walked in. Visibly stuff would happen with her and people would see it. She goes there to go preach, and there was this angry mob that had just ran off the last missionary that came to their village. They came to run off uh, Miss Amanda. <laughs> and so she kneels down to pray, and while she's praying, the angry mob approaches, but they see the tangible manifest presence of God on her. They can literally see the presence of God on her while she's praying. And just the fear of the Lord gripped this angry mob, the same mob that ran off the last missionary. So they're stuck dead in their tracks. She gets up from praying, realizes that they were there, and she turns around and explains the gospel to them, and they all get saved. That's the kind of stuff she walked in. She, had, she saw healings, other things, and that was part, she was part of the Methodist movement that, was, that came out of Philadelphia. This man here, George Lyle, love this one. He's, he's listening to George Whitfield, who preached, like, probably right on this property. So here's George Whitfield preach. He hears George Whitfield preach, and uh, he gets saved. He's in slavery, goes back to his slave master, and uh, goes back to the plantation where he's a slave, starts preaching the gospel there. Slaves are getting saved. His slave master says, you know what? You're called to be a preacher. As a matter of fact, I'm releasing you so that you can go preach the gospel, and we're going to make sure you're getting ordained. So he sets them free from slavery, a white Baptist denomination, ordains them, and they send him out to be a church planter. He goes down to Georgia, plants the first ever African-American church in their nation, which is still around to this day in Savannah, Georgia. But uh, the slave master's sons decide they want to put Jeffrey back into, I mean, George back into, uh, back into slavery. So they had him arrested in Georgia after their father died. But their white Baptist denomination fought for his freedom, and they legally made sure that he was able to be free. George Lyle then, uh, after working there in Philadelphia, working not in Philadelphia, working there in Savannah, Georgia, he decides, you know, this guy's just giving him a big heart. He always had a heart for the poor in other slave ports around the world, so he wanted to go to Jamaica and start a work there. So he goes to Jamaica and raises support from around the world, starts some businesses there in Jamaica, and he plants this church that becomes a 4,000-member church in Jamaica, turns Jamaica upside down with the gospel of Jesus Christ. I mean, so much so that even today there's a, there's a statue for George Lyle that's there in Jamaica. Most people don't know why it's there, but it's because of the gift that he was to, uh, to, to, the, to that island there. And here's the thing. George Lyle was the first ever missionary to leave American soil. He's the first missionary to leave American soil, black, white, or whatever, right? A um, couple more of these, and some of skip back some of these. <laughs> There's some great stories. Uh, I'll tell you one story that's not up there. There's a man named Richard Allen. He was in Delaware as a slave, and there was a white preacher named uh, Freeborn Garrison. Freeborn Garrison, while the revival was going on, owned lots of slaves. 
He gets saved in a revival meeting, and he walks into his family prayer, uh, prayer time that morning, and he says, listen, I'm called to preach the gospel, and all the slaves that I just inherited, I'm setting them all free. And he becomes a preacher. He goes to Delaware to go preach. Richard Allen is there. He's a slave, and Richard Allen gets saved. And then Freeborg Garrison goes back to Delaware, preaches the gospel to, to Richard Allen's slave master. Richard Allen's slave master gets saved, and he sets Richard Allen free too. And Freeborn Garrison and, and Richard Allen traveled across the country, black and white, preaching the gospel. Uh, eventually, Richard Allen would come here, become part of St. George Methodist Church. There was, unfortunately, a division there with the church, and he leaves from there and starts the African Methodist Episcopal Church. But all that was birthed out of revival. And there were many times where you see black and white running together uh, to, to spread the gospel. Look at these real quick. Uncle Jack, an African-born slave and Baptist convert, preached in Nottoway County, Virginia. He impressed some white church members enough to make them purchase his freedom and settle them on a farm. Jack continued to preach for 40 years and had the satisfaction of converting his slave master son to Christ. Toward the end of the 1800s, Methodist licensed Henry Evans, an African-American man, free man and shoemaker by trade. Evans was responsible for the planning of Methodism, not the AME church, but the Methodist church in Fayetteville, North Carolina. Originally preaching to black people only, he attracted the attention of some prominent whites, and ironically, the numbers of the whites who came to hear him preach soon outnumbered and supplanted the blacks. All right? This is right in the middle of slavery. Uh, Josiah Bishop, black man of considerable talent, was, uh, was a slave, I didn't write it correctly up there, but what happened, he's a slave, becomes this preacher, this white congregation basically pays for him to, uh, buys his freedom, and they make him the pastor of their church. But you don't hear these stories, right? So, shortly after that time period, 40 years later, what happens? This powerful revival happens with this man named William J. Seymour. How many of y'all heard, ever heard of the Azusa Street Revival? Oh, come on, powerful time. Little man named William Seymour, um, one-eyed preacher. Here's about the baptism of the Holy Spirit with the evidence of speaking in tongues in Houston. And uh, is flying to, not flying, he's on a train, going to uh, L.A., gets to L.A. and preaches in this church about receiving the baptism of the Holy Spirit with the evidence of speaking in tongues. And the next day he goes back to continue to preach, and they padlock the doors to the church. <laughs> Mostly because he hadn't experienced it himself, and they didn't believe in it. So he's waiting for the next train to go back to Houston, but he finds out about this prayer meeting at 214 Bonnie Bray Street there in, there in uh, Los Angeles. So these women have been tearing, waiting for the Holy Spirit to come. He goes in, and they all get baptized in the Holy Spirit, begin to speak with other tongues, not just like prayer language tongues, like other languages. And... The glory of God fell so powerfully on that house that uh, the fire department would often show up because they would see flames coming from the, from the place. They said the presence of God was so thick that blocks away people would fall out under the power of the Holy Spirit before they got to the house. Eventually, because all the crowds the, the, uh, that were coming, the, the porch caved in, so they went to this other place called 312 Azusa Street. And that's where the Azusa Street Revival got started. And here's the thing that was so significant about Azusa Street. People of all different ethnicities were affected by it. Right? Red, yellow, black, and white. The, all affected by that revival. They showed up to be part of it. People from around the world, around the globe. And you, you know why we have social distancing right now, right? People had socially distant relationships back then. 
right? You didn't just you didn't just walk up to anybody and not just hug them, but let alone shake hands with them. You didn't shake hands with anybody unless you knew them very, very well. And that was the thing that blew people away at Azusa Street in 1906. They saw people who were white, black, Asian, Hispanic, all hugging on each other, weeping and crying and praying together. William Seymour said that the greatest manifestation of the Holy Spirit at that time was not speaking in tongues. It was the love and the unity of the people. Isn't that powerful? So their love and unity was a sign and a wonder to the whole world at that time period. And they saw crazy miracles. Like there was a man who had, had his fingers sawed off uh, at, the, at the sawmill. So instead of taking him to the hospital first, they brought him to the church first. I believe those days are coming back. <laughs> anyway, so they bring, and then all of a sudden, before everybody's eyes, the man's fingers grow, grew back in front of everybody's eyes. Another miracle that was powerful, there was a, a Jewish man who was part of a, some newspaper in New York. He came to just totally just discredit the whole revival, and people were hearing about it around the country. So he came there to just see what these cult-like crazy folks were doing. And so he's there, and all of a sudden this young 12-year-old girl comes out of a prayer meeting, and nobody else can understand what she was saying, but she starts talking to this man in a language that none of them had heard before except him. When she gets through, this man is shaking, he's crying. When he composes himself, he stands up before everybody. He said, he said listen, I came here to refute everything that's going on here. He said, but I can't any longer. He said, because that little girl spoke to me in perfect Yiddish. She told me my first name, and she told me my last name. She told me where I was from, and she told me why I came here. And she told me details about my life that nobody else knows except me. And she talked to me about your Jesus Christ, and I want to accept him now as my personal Lord and Savior. Yeah, that's called tongues and interpretation of tongues. <laughs> Isn't that powerful? Because these were praying people. Man, you ever walk in on somebody else praying for you? I overheard my mother praying for me once, and it, 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 it messed me up. I was, my little knucklehead days, 20-some-odd years old, Morehouse College, knucklehead, thinking I'm going to sneak into my mother's house at 3 in the morning, being a little tipsy, and, um, you know, during the summer break, hanging out at the club. But I walk in at 3 in the morning, who's praying for me? My mama. I mean, she's just, devil, you better back up in the name of Jesus. Delilah, I see your hand. Jezebel, I bind you. I'm like, no wonder I couldn't get a date. <laughs> My mama just blocking everything. I can't get a phone number. Couldn't get a dance partner. <laughs> Later on, I was like, mama, you didn't know it. I thought, you know, I gave my life to the Lord. A couple of years later, I said, Ma, you don't know it, but there was this one night I snuck into the house and heard you praying for me, and it branded me. Thank you for praying. So you didn't know I was on the other side of the wall, but thank you. She said, oh, I knew you were there. <laughs> yeah, I knew you were there. I just wanted you to hear what was on God's heart and my heart concerning your, your purpose. There are certain times where God will allow you to overhear prayers, right? Overhear prayer means that's what happened with this gentleman here, Martin Luther King. Do you, do you, know, do you know that the phrase, I have a dream, was actually birthed out of a prayer meeting? There's this little girl named Prathia Hall. She's 22 years old. How'd you like to have a name Prathia? Her daddy named her after prayer. He's a Baptist preacher named after prayer, named her Prathia. They're, they're in this church that had been burned down by the Ku Klux Klan. 
So these Christian leaders are there, and they're all brokenhearted. And Prathia Hall is there. Dr. King is there. And they stand in the middle of this rubble. And Prathia Hall begins to pray in a rhythmic cadence, I have a dream. And she just starts naming off different things. Later on, Dr. King went up to him and said, hey, uh, young lady, you mind if I borrow that phrase? <laughs> she said, yes, sir, by all means. You know? So he made that part of his prayer life for a year. Used it as part of his prayer life for a year. And then so he, in Detroit, two months before the March on Washington, he's in his speech and he gets to the end and just because he's been saying it part of his prayer life all this time, he just breaks into, I have a dream. And Mahalia Jackson was there, famous gospel singer. So his speechwriters were there and they said, okay, doc, here's the deal. When we do this thing on Washington, March on Washington next month, listen, Let's leave that I have a dream stuff out. It's too cliche. Let's just stick with that thing about the canceled check we come to cash with America. So that's what the, the speech was really called first. <laughs> it was about this check with America. And so Dr. King, if you, and Dr. King reluctantly agreed, and so he left, leaves it out of his speech. And so if you have the right version, you see where he's reading this speech verbatim, and then he gets to the end, and then you can hear in the background Mahalia Jackson say, Martin, tell him about the dream. Everybody needs a Mahalia Jackson in their life, right? Remind you. And then he kicks in, I have a dream, and the rest is history. Because God loves prayer. He remembers prayer. <laughs> so Prathia's dream became Dr. King's vision for, for us all. Right? So remember those prayers that were prayed underneath that kettle pot? So in my family, I wound up meeting this guy <laughs> who was led to a prayer gathering that I was at because of a dream. And so he comes to this prayer gathering because he had a dream about the guy over the event and didn't know that he existed. So he looks him up on the internet and he's like, oh my God, this person really exists. And he's doing this prayer gathering in Washington, D.C. on January 17th, 2005, MLK Celebration Day. It's a prayer meeting, but I think I'm supposed to go. He wasn't part of anything we were doing. And we became friends. We've been friends for 17 years now. Well, fast forward. That white friend of mine, Matt Lockett, he found out that the Civil War ended in his family's front yard. Right? And here's actually the, the picture of the house. There's <laughs> a memorial stone in the front where it says, Here Lee fought his last battle, April 6, 1865. The Northern Army was in the front. The Southern Army was in the back. The only thing that stood between them was this house. Kind of a picture of the church today, right? We need to be that house of prayer that's standing in the gap between the, between the brothers who are trying to tear each other apart. But anyway, so, so we thought, man, what a cool coincidence. I got this kettle pot where slaves pray for freedom. You had this house where General Lee fought his last battle. Cool coincidence, but y'all, here's the deal. We stumbled on more research, and we learned that it was my friend Matt Lockett's family who owned my family, where the kettle pot came from. And so we actually took the pot right back to that spot, <laughs> to that place. Now think about it. this happened to two guys who were led by dreams to the place where Dr. King said in his I Have a Dream speech, I have a dream that one day the sons of former slaves, the sons of former slave owners, will be able to sit together at the table of brotherhood. <laughs> So maybe the dream speech wasn't poetry, maybe it was prophecy. Yeah.
Maybe there's this dream king called the king of kings, and his father's still going to answer his prayer. Father, I pray that they'd be one so that your glory could come so that the world would believe. Maybe God had forgotten about the prayers about our mamas and our papas. All right. Let me share this last one with you. Y'all ever heard of this man here? His name is S.M. Lockridge. S.M. Lockridge. S.M. Lockridge, powerful preacher, one of those powerful preachers I ever heard. Um, he traveled with Billy Graham. And they traveled together across the country preaching the gospel together. Most people don't know about him. Now, I didn't know about him back in my knucklehead days I was telling y'all about. The first time I ever heard S.M. Lockridge, I was at a nightclub. I'm in a nightclub, and uh, you know you don't you don't fit in as a as a backslidden Christian. You don't fit in anywhere. I say it like this: you don't fit in nowhere, <laughs> because you know you have, especially when you have people praying for you. The presence of God just kind of hovers over you, right? And the hand of God is just waiting for you to turn around. You're still playing the fool, <laughs> right? And so you try to hang out with your lost friends. You're like, hey, what y'all doing later? Y'all going to the club? Um, maybe. Cool, come scoop me before you go. They don't scoop you. You know why? They don't scoop you because you got the hand of the Lord over you. The presence of God is on you, and you make them uncomfortable. You kind of convict them, actually. Right? It's like the, in Hosea chapter 2 where it says, uh, Hosea prayed the hedge, he prayed this thorny hedge around his wife, Gomer, who was cheating on him all the time. Thorny hedge in the spirit. So in other words, it says in there that she would drive away those that she was trying to pursue. <laughs> so, that's, so that's all you're doing is just driving away people that you're trying to pursue because the hand of God is on you. God has you hedged in with prayer. Then I was like, hey, to my Christian friends, hey, what y'all doing later? And they're like, not what you're doing, <laughs> but we're praying for you. So I decided to go to this club one night. I'm, I'm just feel, I'm finally, you know, feeling kind of lonely, feeling stupid, like, why am I here? Lost people are in there looking at me like, why are you here? You don't fit in here. <laughs> All of a sudden, we're there, finally got somebody to dance with me. <laughs> And uh, all of a sudden, I see, I didn't realize it, but the DJ had gotten saved and put in his two-week notice. And at the end of the night, he would put on dance music, house music beats, and mix it in with, with, a, with, a, with a sermon. And his friends would rush in with these gospel tracks and share the gospel. <laughs> and eventually, the club shut down. Because so many people got saved, they left the clubhouse and went to the church house with the DJ. <laughs> but I'm in there one night, not knowing this. It's close toward the end of the night, and all of a sudden, I'm on the dance floor, and I hear this. My king is a seven-way king. He's the king of the Jews. That's a racial king. He's the king of Israel. That's a national king. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of heaven. He's the king of kings, and he's the Lord of lords. That's my king. Well, I wonder, do you know him? I'm like, oh. I know him. I couldn't even get my dance steps right, y'all. I think they were doing like the Pee Wee Herman back then. I couldn't even do it. I'm like, God, what are you doing here? Probably because of my praying mama, right? Everyone preacher say it like this. The only difference between a praying mother and a pit bull is lipstick. Because a praying mama don't let go. 
But you know what? That became one of my memorial stone moments. I remember like Mephibosheth when God found me when I wasn't looking for him. And so I used to play that over and over again. I used to listen to it. Became part of my prayer life for 20 years. Then I lost the cassette. Young people, a cassette is a thing about this big. It has two holes in it where you can put pencil in it. I lost the cassette, but then I realized I had it memorized. Can I, can I tell you what S.M. Lockery said? Can I do it the way he did it? See, because we, we we're so sophisticated now. We have PowerPoint slides, and we're teachers, not pastors and preachers anymore. But listen, especially in my community, we don't like, we don't like hooping anymore. Listen, the Lord said to me, there was a time when that hooping got you through slavery. <laughs> it got you through Jim Crow. It got you through the Civil Rights Movement, and it got you at the club. Here's what S.M. Lockridge goes on to say. He says, no means of measure can define his limitless love. No far-seeing telescope can bring into visibility the coastline of his shoreless supply. No barrier can hinder him from pouring out his blessing. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. Then that old preacher say, do you know him? <laughs> He's the greatest phenomenon that has ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's son. He's a sinner savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He stands in solitude of himself. He's august and he's unique. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He's the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's a supreme problem in all high criticism. He's the fundamental doctrine of all true theology. He's the cardinal necessity for all spiritual religion. He's the miracle of the age. He, he, yes, he is. He is the superlative of everything good that you choose to call him. He's the only one qualified to be an all-sufficient savior. I wonder, do you know him today? He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He strengthens and sustains. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleanses the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges beggars. He delivers the captives. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the age. He rewards the diligent and he beautifies the meek. I wonder, do you know him? Well, listen, my king, he's the key. He's the key to knowledge. He's the wellspring of wisdom. He's the doorway of deliverance. He's the pathway of peace. He's the roadway of righteousness. He's the highway to holiness. He's the gateway to glory. Do you know him? Well, his office is manifold. His promise is sure. His life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His word never changes. His love is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. And his yoke is easy. And his burden is light. Then that preacher said, I wish I could describe him to you. But he's indescribable. Yes, he is this God. He's, he's indescribable. He's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. Well, you can't get him out of your mind. 
You can't, you can't get them out of your hands. You can't outlive them and you can't live without them. Well, the Pharisees couldn't stand them, but they found out they couldn't stop them. Pilate couldn't find any fault in them, and the witnesses couldn't get their testimonies to agree. Herod couldn't kill him, death couldn't handle him, and the grave couldn't hold him. And all those cloud of witnesses with them are looking over the balcony of heaven, along with your mama, your papa, your mother, your father, and them, all those others who prayed you in. And they're saying to you right now, root and ground yourselves together in covenant love. Empty yourselves of all your agendas so his light can shine forth clear. Wash the windows of your soul so that nothing hinders a light from going forth. Because God is raising up a lighthouse in Bristol. He's raising up a lighthouse in Philadelphia. He's raising up a lighthouse in Pennsylvania. He hasn't forgotten about the prayers of Mother Dabney and he hasn't forgotten about the prayers of William Penn. So that generations even yet to be created can praise him. Stand to your feet. Well, I don't know what to say after that. <laughs> that was a bit of a joke. No, I'm just gonna, I, just, I just feel compelled to say this. I just can feel to say these two things and we'll, we'll have our cafe. And um, I don't know if Dana, could you maybe just get on the keys just to help me out real quick? <sighs> so I'm just going to teach you for a moment how I teach my, uh, my kids in high school. for a moment. I'm sorry if, if it's a little longer today. We had, we had extended time of worship, but I just I'm feeling, I'm feeling the unction of the Holy Ghost here. Okay? Dr. King said, if you have nothing willing, if you have nothing that you're willing to die for, you have nothing for which you're willing to live. I just feel a Holy Ghost presence to say this. There is nothing sadder in a man's life and there's nothing sadder in a woman's life than coming to a point in their history that they no longer dream. Dr. King said, I have a dream. Do you have one? Do you have one in the spirit? Could your dream be whether I'm beaten, whether I'm killed, whether I'm tortured, I'm going to go pray. I'm going to pray in a manner that I may not be set free, but I know the next generation will. Do you have a dream that is in accordance to a, the, of Exodus? Build an altar unto the Lord, but it cannot be cut. The stone cannot be cut, nor a tool be put to it, nor any mortar. Because if you cut a stone and you put mortar on it, it's permanent. And the grand theology of the Lord is that these altars that are built by previous generations are in fact designed to have to be repaired again. It's designed that way, people. You see, if an altar of our grandparents, the altars of our spiritual ancestors were permanent, it would mean you could just go to it and it would be cheapened. But if you have a dream, 
You got to go down to those stones and you need to pick them up and you need to put them together again because there's no mortar to keep them together. It takes a man and a woman of God to keep the altar standing. If it was permanent, you could just go back and it would mean nothing. But when you got to get your hands dirty and when you got to sweat it out and you need to build it up again, you say, Grandma, Grandpa, Seymour, Billy Graham, William Tennant, Wesley, Finney. Man, I'm picking up those stones and I want to be invested in it. And this is my dream. I'm telling you right now, church, one of the biggest plagues in the modern church is that notion of convenience. People don't want to go down and pick up those stones anymore. They want someone else to do it. But in God's infinite wisdom, he says, no saw, no tool, and no mortar. Because Abraham goes to Isaac, and Isaac has to put the work in a little bit. And then Jacob has to do it. You see, the next generation needs to be invested in the dream. Are you invested in the dream that God has over this generation? Do you have the unction of the Holy Ghost? This is a burden with a fire to rebuild the altars of my nation. To bring a ministry of reconciliation. To get up early in the morning and be in travail in the glory of God. I'm telling you, from the bottom and the depths of my spirit, man, the Lord wants to do that in this hour. But he's asking, what's your dream? Or even worse, do we even have a dream anymore? Well, I have a dream that yes, that our children would not be judged by the color of the skin, but by the content of the carrier, yes. But you know how Dr. King ended his speech? That one day, all of God's children Jew and Gentile, Protestant and Catholic can all rejoice in the great Negro spiritual. I'm free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty, I'm free at last. And I'm telling you that in our nation, we're coming into a place that, that, that there, for most of us, we no longer judge people by the color of the skin, although there are people that do that. But I'm telling you, we haven't reached a generation where Jew, Gentile, Protestant, Catholic, black and white, young and old, male and female can all join hands and say we're free. We're free because of the blood of Jesus. We're free from the chains, the powers of sin and darkness. I want to see that and it's going to come when we build an altar of prayer and intercession just like those slaves did so many years ago that says even if I don't see the day of my deliverance I've been to the mountaintop and I have seen the promised land we intercede we build the altar we repair the altar for the next generation and for this one Father I just come before you Lord I pray right now right now that we can have a dream again 
the dream will not just be the career the dream will not just be the house and the dream will not be x y and z but a holy ghost visitation dream that the glory of the lord would fall in our place dead would rise people would be delivered let that be so oh please let it be so oh Lord please let I beg you oh dear father Lord I ask you I ask you Lord let that which this weekend was let that be the purpose to release a dream so we partner with the dream and the vision of God. Awaken us from the stupor. Awaken us and quicken us to get serious in the glory of the Lord. If a slave can pray knowing that he or she would die, surely I can get my butt up a little early in the morning. Surely I gotta shut that TV off a little bit. Surely I can say Wednesday night I'm coming on out to prayer and getting together with the brothers and sisters of the Lord to pray and intercede for a nation. Surely. Surely those great cloud of witnesses can look down on us and see that. Oh, Jesus, we love you. We adore you. Father, I just ask, let us dream again with you. I just want to dream with you again, Lord. Holy moments. Memorial moments. Things to not just remember. Things that mark us. In Jesus' name. Feel free to, to leave. Feel free to stay for a little bit. We have a time of cafe and fellowship off to the side. If you're able to make it, I just want to invite you to prayer on Wednesday, 7 o'clock, as we just put these things into motion in the Spirit. Have a wonderful week.